Okay, it's yet another episode of First Impressions. I'm your host, Kristen, and I'm here with my co-host, Maggie. Hello. And we are ready to give a big middle finger to all the haters, as usual. Um, today, we're going to talk, I'm super excited to talk about the book, The Making of Jane Austen, which is by Devaney. And I, her last name is not actually pronounced Looser. I think it is pronounced Lozer, if I understood correctly, from the Jasna Boise event that I went to where she actually gave a talk. Um, so it was super fun. I got a copy. My copy is autograph autographed by Devaney. It says your friend and Jane. <laughs> how many how many sticky notes does your copy have in it right now? Oh my god, dozens and dozens of sticky notes <laughs> of all different types and colors. Well, the thing is, I I I was I was reading it and I was like, I really want a highlight, right? I need a highlighter because, but the thing is I'm bad with a highlighter because I start highlighting every passage and especially <laughs> this book. This book has so many incredible yeah. turns of phrase. It has so many sentences that make you wild with envy that you did not write them yourself. And you're like, read the page and you're like, damn it, what's the point? It's, it's <laughs> a beautifully written book. And I don't, books that tend to have a more academic bent, that's not something you usually find. Uh, but it is a beautifully written book. Um, there were words in the first chapters. I had to look up what they mean. And <laughs> I'm not saying I'm the smartest person alive, but you know, I'm no slouch. So that was impressive. And I felt, I felt like I'd been educated in more but ways than one. Even that because so, so much information gets packed into each of these sentences, but it is in no way difficult or arduous to read. Like it's, yeah, I it's, totally agree. it's got such good flow and such humor and such grace. It's, you know, like it's written really, really well. And so, yeah, so every, every time I came across one of these amazing turns of phrase, I'm like, I got to get a highlighter and highlight this so I can go back to it. But I don't want to, I'm, the other thing about me is I can't draw a straight line. So when I highlight things, it's a disaster. Like it's a zigzaggy, like yellow splotch on the page. You don't even understand what I was trying to do. So um, I, I went for my tags, my flags as usual. And then when I had longer questions, I put a big, long, you know, post-it and it hangs out the bottom of the book. So this book, it is no longer like a rectangle. Like if you try to transport it, you're in some way like destroying my research every time you put it down. So um, yeah, it's a very fragile uh, piece of literature right now. Maybe you could curl up the long post-its like scrolls <laughs> and then you just kind of can unroll them like full question. The other day I was rereading a chapter and a flag fell out and it said, quote this, all caps and I was like dang oh, no. it <laughs> dang it but no I mean if that hasn't made it clear to you already like you have to buy this book like if if you are a Jane Austen fan and you have any appetite at all for Jane Austen reading scholarship about Jane Austen culture this book changed blew my mind I changed my mind. yeah I know I, I, like I knew a lot about Jane Austen's writings when they when she wrote them and then maybe like 10 years after and I knew when we had in my lifetime the explosion from the movies right. I have no idea of all the history in yeah. between. Well, you know, and I think in one way in this book is is pioneering, and I think it says so, is um, with regard to suffragettes. We yes. had no idea. I had no idea how Jane Austen was used by the suffragette movement 
um, how, what she symbolized and how she controversial she was and how politicized she was. And that, that kind of all faded away. And now we get to have that history again, thanks to the incredible research that Devaney, I'm just going to say Devaney because I really don't want to mispronounce her last name. I think it's Lozer. So anyway, that Devaney has done. And seriously, by the way, guys, there are more than 20 libraries in the acknowledgments of this book. That's, I mean, the research is so amazing. There are images, there are quotes, there are documents she clearly read the originals of, and it's just like uh, a career's worth of research. It's so awesome to read. And I wanted, I actually have a personal story to share about that, but let me just not talk about myself. So let's talk about the actual book contents. Okay, but I want to hear the story. Okay, well, you will. Well, so the beginning of this book is um, when she takes you into sort of things you may not have known. What she does is she's talking about reception studies, which is a field where you try to figure out how a piece of art has been received, as I understand it. So we don't know a lot. I mean, I, the average person off the street doesn't know a lot about what happened after Austin published her books, then she died. So what you learn is that, well, all of these editions started coming out, right? Publishers started printing and reprinting her novels. Mm -hmm. And some of these novels were illustrated. Well, the thing is, as, as we've always said on the podcast, your first Austin or your first Pride and Prejudice is the Pride and Prejudice you love. It becomes your favorite no matter what it is. Because that's when you're taken into the story. That's the world that's created for you. That's how you see the characters. You can't picture anybody but Jennifer Ely's face or Kira Knightley's face or Elizabeth Garvey's face, you know. And um, I never considered that. But when you think about readers back in the, the 19th century, they didn't have TV and they rarely saw anything on the stage. They were getting illustrated copies of these works. And we don't have illustrated copies today unless you're reading something like a Nancy Drew. All my Nancy Drews have illustrations in them, which helps you as a kid picture what's going on. But it's, it's hard to overstate how much the illustrations actually impact you as a reader in helping to form your mind around what the story is really about. Absolutely. I'm just nodding along with everything. <laughs> just assume I'm nodding. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you know? I think Maggie probably knew from the beginning that I was going to be a freight train rolling over her. No, uh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> right. All I have to do is like, you're absolutely right, Kristen. Because <laughs> you are. I mean, I don't know how when when you want to get into the illustrations. To me, what blew my mind is they would illustrate her novels in contemporary clothing. Yes. Yes. So the Victorian readers would see characters in Victorian clothing. Yes. And I had to put the book down for a second and think about this. So it's like I'm reading a book that's written 50 years ago, or you know, set, let's say 1940s, 1950s, where it's like very specific clothing style. And it is set then. They have not changed the text, but they are running around in contemporary clothing. <laughs> And yes, and the thing is that readers would have picked up clues. I mean, it's certainly in Pride and Prejudice, um, the Napoleonic War is going on, certainly in Persuasion, it references the year six, right? You know, so people would have known the year, but for whatever reason, these Victorian, they, and this was, this was actually, I believe, done on purpose. 
right? Because if illustrations look like you, look like you, the Victorian reader, you're, you can connect with the text more easily. It's more entertaining to you. And you're like, oh, you know, you know, you can relate to it. And so to modernize it into the 1830s, they just drew, um, them in, you know, Victorian era clothing. So, and this, this actually had a huge impact. Um, there's a story in the making of Jane Austen uh, about Sheila K. Smith, who um, did some various writings. But she was saying, "I, I, I thought of Austen as a woman in a, you know, a dress and a bonnet and very demure and very gentle. Long after I should have known better, right? Because the impressions of the illustrations stayed with me for so long that that's the image I had in my head, and it makes total sense. And so this early illustrator Pickering." Ferdinand Pickering is the name of the guy who illustrated the first full set from Bentley. I mean, you, you, um, we're going to talk about him too. I think Maggie, but as you were saying, he made, he illustrated things in a very familial, very female and very sensational way, almost like they were Gothic novels. And I thought this was fascinating too that for the frontispiece, okay, and so this is the other thing. I didn't, I wasn't sure I was saying frontispiece right. Um, I looked it up and I think that's how it's pronounced. But the frontispiece is um, the illustration that it appears when you open the, the title page of the book. So it's like a little preview of what's to come. You know, if you bought, picked up a book in that era and you didn't know what it was about and you opened it, the frontispiece would give you some kind of impression. So for Pride and Prejudice, it's Lady Catherine accusing Elizabeth. And for Sense and Sensibility, it's Lucy Steele showing the picture of Edward Ferris, right, to Eleanor. And um, in Mansfield Park, it's it's Mary Crawford and Fanny. So what he did was he took the female villains. He took the female tension, which is a fascinating decision. It would have impacted how people understood and approached the books. And, you know, we don't know the ramifications, how many people read these books, how many young women read them and came out of them even thinking that they were told something sensational and rather than something didactic or comic or with social criticism. So it may have some ways it may have done her disservice, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, I think it also, I'm trying to think of how to say, I think that and the, the book raises this point with a lot of the criticisms that they, she was able to find, which I don't know where you find this, but she was actually able to find some direct quotes about the artwork, the illustrations themselves. Yes. And I think there's just kind of a simplification. Yes. People were complete. People were complaining about them, like um, taking issue with like, oh, the conceited boy that does duty for Darcy. Darcy was 30, you know, or like talking about people as the lamentable Hugh Thompson or whatever, um, because they were not happy with the illustrations because it's not, they were, they had interacted with the text and said, no, that's not who they are. Like this just goes to show that people fundamentally never change because we are still <laughs> having these arguments about casting in movies and all of that. That's not by Darcy. Well, guess what? You're not the only person who read the book, okay? <laughs> so true. It's so true. But I think there's just so many kind of um, maybe anachronisms between those illustrations and the actual contents of the book. The wardrobe being a huge one for me. It's just ridiculous to me, this whole putting them in Victorian clothing makes no sense. Well, it's, and once I read this, like once I realized the thrust of where this argument was going, I was shocked because I have always cared about the text. The text is paramount. I never cared about the editions that I owned. You know, I've never been one to collect all of the pretty covers or whatever. 
And as soon as I read this and I realized how impactful illustrations were in people approaching her work back then, I was like, these books are so, um, so meaningful. So let me tell this personal story. So right about this time, I was um, at my, so I worked for a university. I was given as a favor, a tour of our special collections uh, area, which is in our basement. It's like, you know, temperature controlled and everything. It's where the old stuff is. And the special collections librarian took four of us down, four new employees down there. We have um, a guy who used to live in the town where the university is. I'm just going to dox myself. Okay. I don't want to, I want to talk around this. Don't put it out there. <laughs> Anybody who wanted to figure out who I, who I was could totally figure out what are they going to do? Are they going to write to my employers and say, she doesn't like persuasion, fire her. Like, I don't know. She dropped an F-bomb one time. Like they, they know. They oh man, I do that at the office every day. <laughs> They know. And my office is my dining room, by the way. Because <laughs> oh, I right. Well, you do work from home. So, that <laughs> so I easier. actually do all that. <laughs> she took us down to Special Collections. She wanted to show us that we have someone who grew up in Pocatello, became a designer for Lucille Ball on the I Love Lucy Ooh. show. His original sketches are there. We, we've got fabric samples. It's fabulous. But she takes us into the room. And as I turn the corner, I see, what's this? And it says the Samuel Johnson collection. And so I look closer and they had early editions of, for example, Samuel Richardson's uh, Clarissa. They had oh. all of the Johnson's Life of Poets. Wow. They had a book called The Female Quixote, which I had just actually learned that Austin had read. And these are the original, actual old, uh, older editions, the objects themselves. And because I had literally just the night before read the chapters about the illustrated books, I was like, oh my God. And I was like down, I was like my face pressed to the glass. I was like, I can't believe that we have these things. This is amazing. And then, and then she let me hold one. And I was like, I could saw, I saw the frontispiece of one, you know, I was looking through it. I was like, these are like the real things. And I, I swear to God, I got, I got, I had tears in my eyes. It was like very... Very, very, everybody else was just sort of standing around. They didn't know what to do. And I was so into it. And to, to give you some context, I'm a medical librarian. <laughs> I mean, this was clearly not a matter of professional interest. Um, I mean, that's how I felt when I went to the British Library and I saw letters that Jane Austen had written. In her own handwriting. Right. Yes. And it always reminds me of... Okay, small, small tangent, but it's Harry Potter. So that scene in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows when he finds the photograph and the letter yes. that his mother wrote and had sent. He says, here is a tangible reminder that she had lived. She had put pen to paper and she had written this and he was holding it now. And that's how I feel yeah, about I seeing those things. This, this woman who really lived sat down and wrote this thing and I am now looking at it. It's so po powerful. And I, I mean, I mean, I remember being in tears outside her townhome in uh, Bath across from the park. I remember seeing her letters for the first time. It, it brings to mind this um, Mansfield park, like the, the fondest biographer, right. Could not be more happy to see handwriting than a lover, you know, would be to see her lover's handwriting. Cause to them, the handwriting itself is a blessing. And mm -hmm. I think to us to see Austin's original handwriting means something. And so when, so I saw this Samuel Johnson collection, right. And then I, I, I was finally pulled away from it and I thought, no, that this is too weird. How do we have so many Austin adjacent special collection books? Our collections about the intermountain West, 
right? Yeah. So I asked and I was like, that's too, that has to be a Jane Austen scholar. And they're like, yes, ISU has a, a Jane Austen uh, specialist, an English, oh. English professor. What he did, uh, Roger Schmidt is his name. And he went to Chawton, um, stayed in a, a, like a barn near Chawton or something. Over a summer, he taught himself to forge Jane Austen's handwriting. I know. know. And now he teaches all of his undergraduate students to write with a quill pen as part of their course. They have to write something with a quill pen. And it's about, and before I had read this this book, this is the point I'm trying to make. Before I had read Devonie's work, I would have thought maybe that's a little silly, but actually the importance of the tangible is, has now hit me so forcefully. And actually I would love to try that. I would love to know. I mean, the deliberateness of the writing. Sometimes people say can feel a little bit overcomposed, but when you knew, you, you, I mean, we don't have, you didn't have word processing software. If you made a huge mess of your page and had to scratch everything out, you know, you, you are going to be deliberate. You are going to think, and you had plenty of time to think about what your sentence was going to be. Um, um, I don't think it's over the top to have your students learn how to write with a quill pen to learn how to forge Jane Austen's <laughs> handwriting is a little creepy. That's a labor of love. I have to say That's that is a little creepy. I'm not sure why. Well, I don't, and I'll tell you what happened after I, I got tears in my eyes about the Samuel Johnson collection. Um, everybody was talking about it later and they told my, my boss and some other people, they're like, oh, Kristen totally geeked out. And I actually was like super offended. Of course you were. <laughs> <laughs> I would not call what happened to me geeking out. It was more akin to a religious experience. Yeah. How dare you? <laughs> Great. This emotional connection to the past. Yes. Right? Yes. 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 It's not like I built something out of Legos. It's a- yeah. <laughs> Anyway. How dare you? <laughs> I hope they were sufficiently abashed. Um, no, I didn't say anything. I mean, you oh, it's all internal. This is all the internal monologue. <laughs> I know, I know. But I mean, back back to what I should be talking about, which is <laughs> the book. And, and sorry, not to hijack it again, but there were a couple of other illustrations that um, she talks about in the book. Did, what did you think about um, seeing that Alexander Francis lied on illustrations of Mansfield Park? That was the one where she's a very, very small figure yeah. in, a, in a vast landscape. How did that hit you? That was the only one of the examples that I actually thought was pretty powerful, while not exact to the book where, you know, she's like kind of up on an incline in a wooded area looking down. I felt that it really captured the emotion that was going on. This is an illustration of Fanny watching Mary Crawford and Edmund when they take her horse out for a ride. And she is left. I mean, in the, in reality, you know, she was just kind of hanging out by the stable waiting, getting more nervous and more nervous and wondering what was happening. And in this, she is looking at them as they are flirting and having fun. She's isolated far away in shadow watching from trees Um, And I felt that it really captured the emotion of her feeling so distant and insignificant. Um, The other illustrations that were provided as examples, I thought were interesting, but I didn't really think a lot of them. Maybe the earlier illustrations from Sense and Sensibility where Marianne is sick and she's drawn as this kind of like almost skeletal, terrifying figure kind of captured the fear. But that was the one that you referenced from Mansfield Park, I thought, 
kind of really got the emotion behind. Yeah, I, I, that was from that was an 1875 edition from Groombridge and Sons, and it, it is as as you described. And and um, w- one of the things it says in the book is, you know, it's evocative of the way Fa- Fanny is feeling, but it ties us to the ideas ties us to the idea of Mansfield Park of the park. So landscape actually plays a significant role in Mansfield Park when you think back on it. And this, I think this illustrator may, you know, might've picked up on that, which is brilliant. Or, or it could have just been that he did, because as it says, um, that publisher did a lot of nature titles. And so maybe he was just used to drawing nature scenes, but the psychological landscape of what's happening in Mansfield Park and her feeling dwarfed and small and insignificant, that image was like a gut punch to me, even when I turned the page and I knew exactly what it was. And, and I just thought that was amazing. So clearly reading that um, edition of Mansfield Park would have changed the way you approached the text. In, eight, in the 1880s also, there were some other issue, um, editions of Mansfield Park where in the 1880s, there were so many conduct novels for young women. And they were just sort of illustrated as Fanny Price being modest, you know, but that contrasted with this other edition, I think really brings home the point of what we're talking about here. And then there's this edition in the 1890s by someone named Hugh Thompson. (laughs) Do you remember the one with the um, picture of Elizabeth Bennett and she has a not for sale sign behind her? Yes. I, I loved the description of that. I loved her description of that more than the actual picture. <laughs> because the picture is almost like stick figures. It's like, come on, guys. Yeah, it's not It's not a super detailed like engraving or anything. But this is the guy who did the peacock edition. That's the peacock cover. Right. And it's but- um, really, it's a very dressed up book because at this time they were given as gifts. Sets of these books were given as gifts and they could be wedding gifts. Apparently it was not uncommon to get a set of Austin as a wedding gift, which is uh, awesome. Do not, do not think. <laughs> That I did not perk up at that. Because <laughs> uh, as you all know, I am two months away. That We are recording this in the middle of February. So I am exactly two months away from my wedding. Like, oh, what is that you say? Full editions of Austin or typical wedding gifts? Oh, how interesting. Also, it's Christmas gifts. Like girl Christmas oh, yeah. gifts, uh-huh. which they, it still is. Come on. Right. And I loved that though. That that's one of the reasons why she had kind of a resurgence in the Victorian era. They were packaging them as, you know, easy Christmas gifts for the people in your family. And it's just, it's exactly what happens now. That made me laugh. I just loved it. Yeah. It's fascinating. It's fascinating to think of, but yes, I like an easy Christmas gift. Like, here you go. There are pictures in it, you know, like enjoy. (laughs) Like (laughs) it's got girls and stuff that you're interested in. So there you go. Well, the Thompson one, this is Hugh Thompson who did, he, he almost did an editorializing style of illustrating these things where rather than just illustrating word for word, a scene, he's telling like a, a, a parallel story uh, with the images he chooses to show. And he did some very cheeky ones. Um, I think he's the one who did the one in Emma, where um, the line is about Mr. Elton trying for Miss Woodhouse with 30,000 pounds, or he'll, he'll soon try someone with 20,000 pounds or with 10. And it's a picture of Mr. Elton holding an auctioneer's uh, bidding sign, rather than being a picture of anything that's actually happening in the story. Yes, so I love it. That. Was again, it was maybe not exactly true to the events of the text, but it captured the satire and the kind of feeling behind what was happening. And the Pride and Prejudice one apparently had Cupid's 
decked out all over it. Oh yeah, which, in the as, margins and stuff like that. In the margins, and as as the book says, uh, pa- I paraphrase, but it's like this is either winking commentary to or or horrifying condescension to the readers. <laughs> yeah, or like everyone was just really digging on cupids right then, so we just had to just put cupids all over it, and they'll love it. <laughs> so yeah, so I mean, to wrap up the com- the discussion of illustrations, like I'll leave you with a quote. Like it says in the book, it had begun to matter not only whether one read Austin, but from which edition one read her. So the illustrations make each Austin a different Austin, her fiction a different fiction, which is fascinating. Anything else you wanted to say about the illustrations? No, I think that you covered a lot. It was just, again, I knew nothing of this. I know. Nothing. Oh, by the end of this, um, by the end of these chapters, I was looking at Mansfield Park Bentley editions for $1,500 on eBay. I was doing this. I could, I mean, I could be lying one. I'm not lying. Don't you like have, well, something's coming up, right? Like some, there's some reason to sell it. Hey, Kevin, I did move out to Boise. Yeah, right. Yes. The time to cash that in. Yeah. So, but, but yes, and I can't stress enough, like we've barely scratched the surface of what is said in here. Um, and you can see the illustrations yourself. You know, if you if you buy this book, you don't have to buy fifteen hundred dollars. That's right. Just buy this book, <laughs> and you're think of it. You're really saving. Yeah, you'd be losing like money. Fourteen hundred seventy five dollars. <laughs> yeah. So it's a bargain. And then okay, so the next and thing the pictures I will oh the pictures are included in the Kindle edition as well because I oh, read good. the Kindle edition. Good, good, good. Um, Which I did purchase. Good job. Yay. <laughs> as a librarian, I endorse your paying full price for copyrighted materials here's the thing like I usually do go to the library but if it's something that is like if you know the person come on yeah right buy that book so the other thing though is I think that the other really powerful thing going on in this book is that Stephanie really makes you aware that um, we were not the, disco- the the generation who discovered the girl power feminist Jane Austen. Yes, in and this no was also way, fascinating. In no way did oh. we discover that. And one of the things that really struck me was that there was amateur schoolroom performances going on during this time, during the early 20th century also. Um, it became very popular to do you know, uh, soliloquies or, you know, schoolroom or like amateur theatricals, just put up a scene. This was amazing. (laughs) So amazing. If I had known that these existed when I was in college and taking theater classes, this shit would have happened. Yeah. And well, our listener, uh, Tash, when she came on the show, we asked, how did you get into Jane Austen? She said she did a model, a, a performance of Elizabeth Bennet. Um, and it was in school. She had to do this performance of Elizabeth Bennet. And she's like, I love Elizabeth Bennet. I have to know more about this character. And that's how she got started reading the books. And that character um, introduced her to Austen. And what's so fascinating about this time there's one woman, Rosina Filippi, I think is how you pronounce her name. She saw she saw that Austin could be put to use here. And she created a book that was very popular and widely reviewed called The Duologues of, or I don't know if it was called, but it was a book of duologues. So it was a book of performances that could be done by two people. You didn't need a set. You could do it for fun or for, in a schoolroom or um, whatever. Kristen... What? We're two people. 
I'm just saying, I, I also, I had so many crazy thoughts and I will try to pepper them throughout the podcast to let you know what my brain was thinking as I was reading this book. I was thinking it was like all these light bulbs going off. And this one was, oh, Kristen, I need to put on one of these. <laughs> <laughs> but they're fun. And the reason they're fun. I know, it's so fun. And the reason they're fun too is the, the duologues, actually, they most often, um, involve the failed proposals, the Mr. Collins proposal. Because those are the funny ones, right? Yes, they, they have the women characters looking to the audience and saying, wow, this guy is really, you know, like they have yes. funny They have comic asides. asides. Yes, and, and um, you know, they were short comic, dramatic or comic scenes, but they always featured Austin's heroines at their most forthright and bold, Fashion. which is why they would be so fun to do. Right. But why they were also so important, because around this time in the early 20th century, there was something called the New Woman Movement, which is sort of a feminist sort of awakening thing where women were sort of becoming more for bold and forthright, as, um, as you might say. And this is a huge Mansfield Park irony alert, yeah. because... <laughs> Because they were giving these young girls these duologues. They had the stamp of approval because it was literature, right? But at the same time, this is what was introducing people to Austin were these really strong female characters. So this would have a major impact in how young people of the age, young English-speaking women, they were ventriloquizing the carefully selected and dramatized words of an Austin heroine who spoke her mind, stood her ground, and would not acquiesce to the expectations of those around her. This is and that one of the few times I was jealous of something that happened in the Victorian <laughs> age. I was, it would be so fun. Can we actually get our hands on some of those? Are they available? I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure we can. Just have Ebony hook us up. <laughs> She has been, I mean, she must have read, she read them. Oh yeah. Well, she must have seen so many. She's also heard the like first impressions soundtrack. Okay. Apparently there was a musical version. Of oh, Fred that sounded awful. That sounded so <laughs> terrible. It was, but it was written by like pretty famous people who had yeah. had success. And I don't <laughs> know where it went wrong, but it sounded like such a shit show. <laughs> You know, and, and um, this is the point made too. People who are very serious about Austin would look at these duologues and think, oh, the person who wrote these didn't understand the spirit of the book. Or I'm one of those people, you know, when I, I have seen Austin on stage and it has never satisfied me because when you're on stage doing Austin, you play to the back of the rafters. Right. All the nuances lost. But, you know, especially here in America, people are doing the worst, broadest British accents you can imagine. Like you could barely listen to it. And this, this is like, you know, actual good, you know, plays that you pay money to see there. It, it's, it's frustrating, you know? So for me as an Austin snob, I'd be like, this is an Austin. And, and that's what the point Devin is saying too, is that this is not cultural detritus. This is really important in the reception of her work because all of these women were being exposed to the work this way. Right. See, that's the tact I take on it. I think that this is fantastic. I think it's amazing adding little comedic things. That's fine. Anything that exposes people to literature and the source material, they will go seek it out, which we know happened. And it's also why I have no problem updating or changing Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was in a theater group called Shakespeare in the Dark, where the whole point was we took the plays and there was always some kind of twist or a change. And I think that's great. This is how we keep these things alive. For sure. I mean, there are, I believe there are like 
adaptations of Julius Caesar where they dress Julius Caesar up as obviously supposed to be whoever the current president is, you know, like, ooh, edgy, you know, like we're making it current. But the, if that's what you need to get connected. And actually, I saw a tweet just the other day that ties back into that our Ellie Clueless podcast where someone was saying, hey, let's bring the trend back of like adapting literary classics for teen as teen movies. Yeah. <laughs> because if that's how you get interested in them, well, I, I mean, they, I mean, they did with EZA kind of, right? Oh, they, well, all of us, the movies that we mentioned. Yeah. Um, you wanted to talk about, I Dear, want to talk about Dear Jane. Dear Jane. Yes. Yes. Because I would pay hundreds of dollars to actually see this. It sounds awesome. This is a play about Jane Austen's life. And I think it was the first time, is it the first dramatization of Jane Austen herself, her life? I, that could be. I don't have that written here, but he, we'll see. Right. The playwright played Cassandra and her lesbian lover played Jane. And I am here for it. I love <laughs> it. I want to see it. I want to go to Broadway and see these lesbians. <laughs> it's important. Show and have Jane basically be like, Nope, I choose me. Peace yeah. out at the end. And it ends with them like sneak. Is it okay? Remind me, does it end with them actually sneaking out of the house they're in? I believe so. I believe they leave wherever they are and they go out. She has several proposals of marriage through it. And they're all, you know, seen as the various men who propose to her are rejected for whatever reason. And the last one, she's like, no, I choose me. I choose to live with my sister. I choose to be a writer. And they have to sneak out of the house in shadow. But it's also her in real life running away from this kind of heteronormative life. And I just love all of it. It's important to note too, that the, uh, the element of the fact that they were lovers was not lost on anybody. It was, everybody knew, everybody Everybody. knew it was a news story (laughs) and it it was, it was a a coded news story, but people who were in the know understood what was, what they were being accused of. And they were sort of just like, well, we don't, you know, we're going to do our thing. And it turned out to be like, okay, everyone's, like they're doing their thing. But yeah, critics winked at the fact that they were lovers. And um, it also ties into Austin's life, right? Like she did reject the proposal from Harris mm-hmm. Bickwither to stay single and keep writing. And we can only speculate it exactly. Yeah. I, don't, I don't think we have any actual proof of, of whether she was gay or not. But for me, it was just, I think I just really could connected to this part of the book because I'm really a lesbian. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, it's because of the absolute balls. Yes. To do that. Or the ovaries. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yes, to, yes. To be, when was this? This was the 1910s? I'm going to say early 1900s. Yeah. yeah. To be like, you know what? I'm going to write a play as a woman about an English woman writer in the early 1800 years ago and I'm gonna cast my lover as her and I'm gonna play your sister and we're gonna do this thing and it's just this amazing like just balls to the wall middle finger at the establishment yeah I just I love it in a breathtaking way yes I love it and it was not successful it only ran I think 12 nights something like that 12 shows 20 shows but it's the fact that it exists so and I now know about it, <laughs> I it was, 
I had no idea. It's just, it is probably for me, it is my favorite part of the book. There is so much, about too, that. so much. Yeah. Just stuff. reading about that and just imagining not only Jane, because we spend a lot of time thinking about Jane Austen, Aubrey, but to also think about these women a hundred years ago who were reading Jane Austen a hundred years ago for them and being inspired like this yes. to create art in that way and that form of artistic protest. It's also fascinating that we know what was staged and the amount of research that went into this, I mean, th there's talk in here in the book of like how many versions of, of Austin were written by women. You know, like, I, I think there were like, there were so many more so playwrights. many plays, women playwrights at that time, adaptations of Austin yeah. that were put on the stage and like registered at the copyright office, you know, like mm -hmm. this is the kind of research that had to go into this, you know, like some of these things. And, and there are things in here, like you can see playbills, you can see who was cast as whom. Uh, I don't know if that's who is cast. And I think it, it goes to show really the importance of the representation because these women were able to read novels written by a woman to gain inspiration from that to create their own art. I, don't know, I just, I thought it was so good. The other thing that blew my mind was the um, woman who co-directed, right? Uh, the first known version of Austin on the stage, which was done by like that, um, Rosina Filippi put the Bennett's up, right? The right. co-director of that be, was a, became a or was a suffragette and played Jane Austen herself in this suffragette propaganda play, a pageant of great women. Oh yeah, that was fascinating. So it's like a direct line can be drawn from these people mm -hmm. who were staging Austen and write, you know, writing these duologues to have Austen be, you know, staged by young girls to people who were actual suffragettes. And that's kind of a, a tingly sort of feeling yeah. too. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm a big theater nerd or <laughs> I was I was such a reader when I was a kid. If this kind of thing had existed, like I remember my best friend and I in, in middle school, that's uh, like seventh and eighth grade, we did a dramatization of our favorite Sweet Valley High novel. Oh my God. Right? Oh, that was <laughs> terrible. That was really terrible. But my point is, if something like this had existed, it would have, uh, it just would have been so much fun to do. To and you it. would have been exposed to that via. Yeah. And of course, there's yeah. more Mansfield Park irony because that all has to do with them putting on a, a, right. a play right. in their home and it being totally inappropriate. I mean, it's crazy how direct the line is from people staging Austin to women speaking their mind, to suffragettes, you know, to people seeing the uh, progressive nature of Austin's works, you know, um, and it's, it's this incredibly delicious Mansfield Park irony. I, I just think actually <laughs> if Jane Austen can come back and know that everything that happened, I think that would be her absolute favorite part that's staging theatricals. Um, yeah. <laughs> some rabble rousing. I, I would really just love to see. And also the description of the Dear Jane play, it just sounded like a really fun play. It sounded like a really enjoyable thing to see the like ballsiness aside of the yeah. people who wrote it and acted in it it would just be really fun to see uh, yeah and some of the plays that she she mentions just various adaptations like the Bennett's at home or there's one right. play that's like Elizabeth refuses like that's the title yeah <laughs> What was the, we're just, just going to see the parts with Mr. Collins. That's this the part. This is a reference back to the illustrations, but the one of the illustrations, the one of the Lady Catherine Elizabeth confrontation, and I think the caption yes. was Elizabeth triumphant. 
Is that yes. what it was? Like we were thinking about when it's originally illustrated, Elizabeth is sitting down and Lady Catherine is sitting up. But then when the duologues were illustrated, it's opposite. So Lady Catherine is sitting down and Elizabeth is standing in the image, giving her more weight in the scene and making her seem more powerful than Lady Catherine. Yeah, I just love that. Yeah, know. so there's, there's so, so many little nuances in there. And then um, just the fa- the other thing that rocked me totally rocked me about this book was the fact that I, I already was aware that it was de rigueur at, in the early 20th century for men to love Jane Austen. Like literally. I did not know this. <laughs> I assume you're referring to the men's clubs. Yes, the men's clubs. So you, you're probably aware, but just in case you are not, um, in this, you know, British society of the Victorian era, men, men belonged to a club, right? It was your club. You would go there. Women were not allowed. If you've ever seen An Ideal Husband, which is that Oscar Wilde adaptation, they're always hanging out in their club. If you've seen the Forsyth saga, he's always at his club. Oh, you know, God. Whatever. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry to any Forsyth saga fans out there, but oh, God. Yeah, it was, kind of, it was kind of a slog. But yeah, so these guys had the egos, incredibly inflated egos, And there were clubs where men thought of themselves as very literary. (laughs) And it was at this time, people were, men were obsessed with Jane Austen to the point I I actually want to read a description. It used to be so common for men to love Jane Austen that to criticize her was dangerous. And here's a quote from the book from a, a man who was part of a club at the time. The reputation of Jane is surrounded by cohorts of defenders who are ready to do murder for their sacred cause. <laughs> I do not want to resign from my clubs. I would sooner perjure myself. So he's saying he he will not admit that he does not like Jane Austen because people will go for his metaphorical throat, which is like if you were in a club with me. That's yeah. how I would be. <laughs> That's exactly well, what I would club. never join any club that would have me as a member. <laughs> well, we're, we're, we're oh my God. Awesome if you're in Kristen's club. supper club, you better just like me on the podcast, just smile and agree with everything she says. I actually have, <laughs> unless like, it's if, about Wentworth. No, well, right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I actually have like Jane Austen has come up in dinner conversations before where Kevin has just had to be like, okay, you know, like we're changing the subject <laughs> now. <laughs> We can't discuss an author from, you know, 200 and X number of years, 200 years ago, because Kristen's way too passionate. Way too passionate about it. But that's how they they were. But the amazing thing about these men's club Janeites is that they all thought she was conservative. She was upholding conservative societal ideals. Oh, it's such a, it's such a boneheaded surface level reading of what's going on. And that's when it makes me want to tear my hair out. Oh, no, I know, but, 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 but yes, well, it's the same reason that Austin, again, I learned this from the book, but that she became a problem child in second wave feminism. And the reason is because her books end in, you know, marriages and social orders are not being, tables are not being flipped. Right. You know, and, and so Emma is a good illustration. There is this guy, G.K. Chesterton, who did an analysis of, who has, it features prominently in this book. One of the things he says about Emma is that he says, look, when she steps out of her place, she gets put back in it. She tries to lift Harriet up only to see herself humiliated and her efforts fail. And this to him was a cautionary tale about women trying to cause social change. And Austin, he thought Austin was saying, you can't. 
she uh, does also say, I'm never going to get married. Why would I? Well, yeah. And then she gets married. Well, I, I always thought that was interesting about Emma too. I mean, when you think about Emma, the snob wins. I mean, at the end, she actually makes that comment like, oh, the stain of illegit illegitimacy unbleached by nobility would have been a stain indeed, you know? And that's the kind of the note the book ends on. And so I understood why he read it that way, but he's missing, as you said, he's missing all of the progressive cues in it and he's missing everything that is progressive about emma and about mr knightley you know and moving also, in at the end I'd, like, while they all end in a heteronormative marriage i just want to point out that it's by choice yes they do want to get married i mean nobody is like i mean emma doesn't want to get when she doesn't want to get married she's not gonna get married right but then when she falls in love with someone and her dad's cool with it she wants to get married and she does. Yeah. But and she it doesn't can, actually have to. On her terms, right? She does. Right. She gets married on her on her terms. Like Lizzie with the not for sale. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So there it's the, the duality of, of Jane Austen here is that people claim her for their politics. This, and that's still yes. happening today. But that this was rampant in the early 20th century. The with dichotomy. The yeah, the dichotomy. The suffragettes on one hand. In the men's club, Janeites, as they're called in the book, on the other. And they both thought, they both were using Jane Austen to make political arguments. There's, in fact, uh, this section of the book opens with, um, opens with a story about a debate in Parliament where both sides <laughs> used Jane Austen to try to one-up the other side. Apparently, it was common, fairly common to reference Austen in the political discourse of the day. It's um, so interesting how two people can look at one source material source and have completely different interpretations of it. This is the freaking genius of her too, is that there's the text and the subtext and you can read her on either level. And, and so many people who read her on the surface level wind up misapplying men? the quotes. Our men. <laughs> in my, and, and, but this oh, is I'm the, kidding. Here's, for, here's the, an example in this. Yeah. Sorry, men. Sorry to be man hating. And, hashtag and, not know. all men. <laughs> hashtag not all men. Yeah, we know. Um, in, the, in the debate in parliament, it's about um, a woman's uh, rights act. And the side that was against this quotes Emma, the book Emma, uh, when lovely woman stoops to folly, she has nothing to do but die. And when she stoops to be disagreeable, death is equally to be recommended as a clearer of ill fame. So the person who said this said it without sarcasm, thought it was like just straight ahead quote Jane Austen's real opinion. When if anybody had actually read the book, that it would have seen that that is a sarcastic passage about the opinion of the people of Highbury. And it's sort of skewering that opinion. Um, it's about Mrs. Churchill when she dies and how everyone's like, well, maybe she wasn't right. so bad because she's dead. I mean, <laughs> but it's funny and it, it has nothing to do to support this anti-woman argument. So is this um, how you feel about the 10 pound note quote? Yes. Yes. Thank you for bringing that up. Cause that was the next point I was going to make. So when you see that kind of misapplication of Austin quotes, you have a direct line to today when they put that, Oh, there, there's nothing as a light in so much as a book on the banknote. The, in 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 um, the UK, which, as we all know, is said by Miss Bingley, who's pretending to be literate to track Darcy, and it's totally a send up of her skewering her. That quote drives me. Nuts. I know. <laughs> oh, you know. <laughs> oh, I know. But no, you're right. You're also correct. 
one of my friends reconciled me to that quote by saying, I don't mind the quote because we can laugh at all the people who don't understand it. That's true because it does make us feel smarter. Yeah. And I'm definitely in favor of things that make me look smarter. <laughs> always, always. Compared to other folks. Yeah. That's well, an excellent point. I am now, I didn't, you know what, to be honest, I didn't have a problem with it anyway. They put Jane Austen on their currency. Come on. Are we really going to like quibble? Yes, we yeah. are. Okay, sorry. Um, because my we're Kenites and that's what we do. Oh my God. <laughs> that is that is the essence of being a Jainite is that Aust- your Austin, uh, whatever it is that you're doing is not good enough. And you don't understand <laughs> her. And only I understand her. Well, everybody has their own personal Jane. And that's what the men's clubs were doing. They, um, for their political purposes, they apoliticized Jane Austen. So they said that she was small, intimate, domestic. There was actually a 1902 private uh, event at a private men's club in 1902. They called it the Night of the Divine Jane. And the guy, uh, Walter yes. Fruin Lord was his name, who gave a talk, was decided to do this very bold thing to say why he didn't like Jane Austen, which is always a very bold thing to do, especially if I'm in the audience. <laughs> but he, um, he, he, echoes, he, he echoes this familiar refrain he says, oh, his works are boring because to be feminine as she was is to be apolitical, small, intimate, and domestic. And that's boring. It has nothing to do with the world at large. It has nothing to do with wars, with po- global political events. And I have to stop here. I wrote in my notes, oh, where have we heard that before? Jane yeah. Austen is boring. Yeah. And this circles right back to like modern day, like men rejecting her stories, right? Because they see the bonnets. The bonnets are on and that's all they see. Right. But also like, oh, because this doesn't feature things that are totally relevant to my personal experience. It has no value to me. Well, this guy gets totally pile driven, pile drived, pile driven. I don't know. I just like hearing you talk like that. (laughs) He, He gets totally eviscerated. This spilled out into the public forum. There was something published on it. Uh, this woman, Annie Gladstone was a feminist came forward with a rebuttal I love the entire thing. You have to read the entire thing. But this is the part I excerpted. And I I want to put this on the Facebook page as well. We must not forget that when the subject is not interesting to us, we are really expressing not the defect of that subject, but our own limitations. We mean that we have little knowledge of it and less sympathy. So really... (laughs) Everybody's running around saying Austin's so boring. Austin's the girl stuff is so boring. It's their limitation, right? Which I think is totally fair to say. Yeah. And whether it's society or patriarch or whatever has made you think that you won't like Austin is a limitation put on you. It doesn't mean that you can't be interested means you're limited from being interested in it. Yeah. So there were the men's club Janeites were sort of trying to limit Jane. And then there were the suffragettes who were trying to upend the limits they were putting on her by saying she was progressive. Oh, actually, there's also in my notes, I guess Mark Twain, we all know the horrible stuff that Mark Twain said. So there's no point getting into it. But he's mentioned briefly in these pages. And I just read in my note, Twain, fuck that guy. So <laughs> <laughs> no, this is this is true. I actually had a friend, a work friend, who I opened up to and I was like, oh, I'm into Jane Austen. You should, you should read some Jane Austen. And he's like, no, I'm a Mark Twain fan. And I was like, excuse me? He's like, proceeds to quote Twain on Austin and I was just read both 
Oh, I know. And I, I was like, well, the, the thing is, the context and blah, blah, blah. We don't know what he really meant, blah, blah, blah. And um, yeah, and I, I just could not convince him. And I was like, damn it. Like, who's a Mark Twain fan? Like, who's walking around like Twain forever? Like, I'm my, my, my Mark Twain well, podcast. he really likes wearing white suits and white facial hair. No, he did. He did. Wait, Twain. I might be thinking of Colonel Sanders. No, he he did Mark Mark Twain uh, cosplay, I believe. Okay, this a- guy is. <laughs> I don't know if he dressed, but the other. Okay, I should just really set him aside as someone not to worry about because the other thing he was really <laughs> yeah, into. Yeah, I wouldn't let your sense of self worth be impacted by the Mark Twain like, cosplay. I really liked the guy, and we were good friends. And I was like, I'm gonna make a Jane Austen convert. He's a really smart guy. He is known actually for running the most active Columbo fan site on the internet <laughs> oh in the God, 90s. God. Who is this guy? So, so Columbo is making his second appear- appearance on this podcast because I don't know if you remember because we were so drunk, but we also talked about Columbo with uh, Arnie Perlstein. So did I mention that I once walked into Bay's apartment and he and his roommates were sitting there watching old Columbo episodes? No. This was what two years happened? ago. This was not 20 years ago. <laughs> Um, but before we before we abandon the men's club chapter for the far more interesting and correct suffragettes, um, the crazy thought I had while reading this chapter, which I had to message Kristen, was would men's clubs see Mansfield Park as their favorite book? There was an article in The Federalist, which if you're oh, familiar with it, is this a very conservative <laughs> publication, but it was the title of it was Mansfield Park is Jane Austen's best novel, which of course I agree with. So I had to click on it, but it was going on and on about how Mansfield Park is Jane Austen's best best novel because it's Christian. It reinforces Christian norms. It's the most moral of her novels, totally missing and misunderstanding that can be read in so many more nuanced ways and different ways. But this is the duality of Austen too, is we can all look at it and see support for different, completely different sides of the spectrum. Because I also find Mansfield Park to be a moral touchstone for myself, a practical morality, but in a totally right. different but way. It just makes me sad when people take something you love and twist it yeah. into or- something bad you know or i can't even say i mean nobody can i mean this goes back into the and the book talks about it too like whose um side does austin support and it's not about we can never really know it's about asking who's you know it's about looking at who's framing the question and asking the question and how are they using austin and and the suffragettes used austin in a very canny way yes um they don't know, and some of them even admitted, you know, like they, they cannot, we cannot know if Miss Austin would be a full on suffragette, but they used her as an example. And they were very clever. There was this saying, there was a big march with all these um, banners. I think that was also in 19, or 1908, a big march um, that the suffragettes did in England with it, with, but they had all these banners with all these great women writers names on them. And there was a there was a fuss where people wrote into the papers like, "Hey, I'm a descendant of I don't know, some the female author that was represented, and she would never have supported suffrage." What they were saying was, "No, these are just women that we're celebrating. These are showing you that these are women who are so celebrated by you, the men, that you can't look at women 
as an inferior sex anymore. Yeah. In, in fact, because Jane Austen was not a super radical, because she was sort of a hidden progressive, it gave the suffragettes sort of a branding thing where it's like, you can be an Aunt Jane suffragette, right? You can support us and be progressive, but you can still be demure. And so it was a very canny use of, right. of Austen in that way. And I think just the, it's also kind of saying we're holding these women up because they kind of inserted themselves into areas of the world where women were not always welcome. So even if Jane Austen wasn't like, yes, universal votes for all women everywhere, she is an example of a woman entering into a world, a space that was almost entirely male dominated. Yes, exactly. And, and that's what we're doing now. We are now taking that a hundred years later and that is what we are doing. And it was powerful. I mean, they, they did this propaganda play and they put, it was a pageant of great women. And actually what the play was, it was funny, it was um, uh, Prejudice Anthropomorphized is a character mm. in the play. So someone else, this is very Victorian, right? This is very Charles Dickens. I'm prejudiced, you know. Was and it then the court case? They were doing court arguments? It's sort of like that. There's justice was like the arbiter and then prejudice is like, like no. Judge Judy, Victorian <laughs> era. I would watch this too. This sounded super interesting to me. Yeah. And this, it was this band of, core band of suffragettes who took this traveling show on the road and they would stage this in various communities and they would cast these women to play the great women that they've pointed out. And Austin, Jane Austen was one of the women. So they had this big parade you know, the uh, Jane, Jane Austen, I believe George Sand was the other female um, author, would come up. Sorry. Sorry. First you dropped your pen and then I sneezed. Oh, my gosh. I couldn't mute it in time. <laughs> Sorry. As I was... And I tried, to, like, I tried to hold my nose shut. <laughs> so like my eyes popped out. No, I'm kidding. I tried to hold my nose shut, but then like snot just exploded. Oh my God. It. it would have been just a normal sneeze, like no muss, no fuss. But because I tried to squeeze my <laughs> nose shut. Are you okay? This is tonight's outtake. Okay, sorry. <laughs> um, what was I saying? So yeah, Jane Austen and like George Sand or whoever, and they get up on the stage and you know, prejudice anthropomorphized is there. And they're like, well, what about these great women? You know, and at the end of the play, after all the great women have come across, uh, prejudice slinks away without anything else to say. So he's been defeated by the great women. But the use of Austin there is just one of the ways that Austin recurred in the, the suffragette movement. And there's so much more in the book that I, I won't go into, not only because, um, you know, I, I don't want to like, spoil the book for anybody but a lot of this seems to be like uh original scholarship that Devin Lucer has put to get Lozer I'm sorry has put together all of these events found these records found the banners and really pieced this together where this history of Austin it use of Austin by the suffragettes has really really gone by the wayside she really was used as in first wave feminism and was discussed in first wave feminism and then what happened, the reason she went out of the conversation was one wartime because she became like when that Winston Churchill quote about being it, a, a diversion, a pleasant diversion during the bombings or whatever. But also because, and this was fascinating, she became sort of a problem for second wave feminists for the very same reason that the men's club day nights loved her 
And that is because every story ends in a happy heteronormative marriage. And the women are content with to be married in the home, you know? Well, we don't actually know if that part's true because what? we don't know what happens after. Oh, well, that's true. That's true. But, but we're supposed to, we're supposed to, that's the thing that's what we're supposed to understand. Extrapolate. Extrapolate. This is why Austin's made for Broadway though, because it always ends in a wedding. Yeah. And so we're going to skip a ton of, of other fascinating stuff, including Austin's scholarship. I, the guy who wrote the first um, Jane Austen dissertation in like the 1950s or so. Or I should, well, I should know. Can we do another episode? I don't think we should because, oh, okay. because I don't want to like spill all the book's secrets. Ooh, good call, Kristen. Yeah, yes, because you everyone wanted you to discover <laughs> yes, yes, nuggets yes. on your own. And then you can write to us and tell us the crazy light bulb moments you had yes. while reading it. And you should. And um, so I just wanted to end. Yes, George Pelou was the name of the guy who wrote the first Austin dissertation, and he came back from the dead. A lot what? of people believe he came back from the dead. He he uh, was channeled by a famous um, medium who would hold seances and uh, people would ask her questions and he would answer George, George Palouf. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. you've got to, you've got to read it. But there's a, mm-hmm. there's a hilarious quote in here. Where it's like, this connection has been, you know, totally overlooked because Austin scholars and parapsychologists never intersect, but maybe they should, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like oh, the Venn diagram of like <laughs> Jane Austen fans. and <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, yes. Or whatever it's called. Paranormal investigators. Yeah. But I wanted to end with the coda. Um, the coda is fascinating. The acknowledgments are fascinating. The extra readers, readings are fascinating. The notes are fascinating. There is a coda about um, her, you know, Devin Loser's personal experience with Austin when she's talking about all of the, and I, I really can't do it justice. It's amazing. I was reading it last night and I was just putting flags all over it. And now it's, I'm going to totally. She's talking about Austin's afterlife. And everything we've learned about how this is not cult, like as I, as she said, this is not just like pop culture detritus. These things that we're learning about here, in the, described in the book, had serious implications not just on how people approached Austin, but how what people took away from Austin that then changed history in its own you know small way or its own contributing way. And she has she said too, you know. This is a quote, Jane Austen in her own way has made me too. Um, so she's talking about her life, her scholarship, her husband, who's also um, an Austen scholar in so many different ways. But I related to that so strongly, so strongly. Like, mm-hmm. again, I had another like misty tears in my eyes moment because I can say the exact same thing is true. It is so true. Jane Austen has also made me, Kristen, uh, I, I would not be the adult I am today without she shaped your, um, your life and your development. Yeah. And just, I don't know. So many imp- also provided a mechanism for us to stay good friends. Even when you moved. That's right. I think Jane Austen made us Maggie, you and me, it, we, our friendship is even though it didn't, it didn't start with Jane Austen, it certainly, I think, deepened our 
relationship. I mean, strengthened our friendship. I mean, we have so much to talk about and so much to delve into and analyze. So it's just a really poignant note to end on. I mean, she made, she made all of us. I am nothing without Austin. I mean, there are some important and sometimes very difficult lessons that I definitely have taken away mm-hmm. from reading and rereading Austin over the years. And so that's why I think it's so worthwhile to delve into this book and the history and the making. It, it really is just endlessly fascinating and so many things that I had no idea. I mean, it's kind of like I was saying at the beginning, we, I just kind of think like, oh, you know, like we redis our generation rediscovered Austin with the movie adaptations, and there was this whole rebirth, and she had just been, you know, wallowing on the bookshelf, <laughs> and it's not true at all, no. at all, um, and it's just interesting to see the patterns that repeat. But I would have never, I may have fans. never known without Colin Firth. I may never have known. So really, Colin Firth shaped you. <laughs> yes, I think we can. Everything That's comes back to big takeaway. <laughs> how many women can say that about? How many women like were ushered into womanhood and puberty by <laughs> Colin? Different. There's a direct line that can be drawn from me to Colin Firth to my current personality. So hey, you know, it's you funny that you said that earlier about seeing Clarissa, a uh, like original copy of Clarissa, because yeah. seeing masterpiece theater version of Clarissa with Sean Bean when I was twelve definitely shaped me. <laughs> you are obsessed with Sean Bean. Does he die in Clarissa too? Oh yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> I mean, it's Sean Bean, though. Come on. He does. I know, but I have to say, you know how a lot of people feel about Colin Firth when they first saw Pride and Prejudice? That's actually how I feel with Sean Bean, because that was one of the first liter- uh, costume drama adaptations I saw was that Clarissa on Masterpiece Theater. It was several years before Pride and Prejudice. And I like fell in love with him, even though he's a real dick in that movie. Like, <laughs> he's not a good guy. But it's so funny to me because then when I hear people wax poetic about Colin Firth, while I certainly had a huge crush on him, it was not as formative for me. That kind of very similar parallel experience did occur. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did try to read Clarissa and it's an epistolary novel and I fucking hate them. <laughs> and I couldn't get through it. <laughs> it's also super long, you guys. It's really well, it was in six volumes when I saw I know. it. <laughs> Oh, it's so bad. And it's just one of those things where like, oh, like I was saying, the adaptation will and all these different things, it brings more people to the source material. And then people like me are the source material's garbage. (laughs) (laughs) I came here with expecting Colin Firth in a wet white shirt. And what did I get? (laughs) Mr. Colin's proposal. So many participles. I just can't. Too much grammar, an excess of grammar. An excess of grammar. Yeah. That's true. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, I mean, I think in closing, <laughs> just closing. this book is really fascinating. It's so good. And it is, it does not read dry. No. It is not like you would imagine an academic novel. And I will actually say, I wish that I could have really taken my time and kind of savored each section because I was reading it for the podcast. You know, we had a timeline. And so 
I couldn't kind of pause and digest between sections. I had to keep, you know, keep reading. Right. I'm a harsh uh, taskmaster. I would have really loved to just, no, that's not true. I have these. <laughs> um, but I just would have really loved to like each section treat it like it was its own kind of piece in the box of chocolates. Yeah. And like, I'll just honest, its own complete digestive rather than, <laughs> but as a book, it's endlessly fascinating, but each chapter has so many revelations for me as a fan. And let, let, me, let me make it clear too. We did not talk at all about the entire section related to the people who played Darcy on stage and how that impacted the oh. performance on film and how the 1940 film was made and things about Olivier the that you rejected yeah. scripts. Oh my for God. The Pride and Prejudice movie section <laughs> was hysterical. The things that people thought about doing. And also, yeah, I, you know, I've never actually seen that version. Really? I, I've seen clips. I know. Yeah. I know that that's kind of, you know, we might have seen scenes of it. I remember we watched scenes of it in my U.S. history class. Oh. Um, after the AP examination, oh, huh. at the end of the year when you've got time to burn and the yeah. teachers are like, let's watch movies. Um, yeah. That was what we watched parts of it. I did not see the whole thing, but just to see Laurence Olivier as Darcy would be worth it, I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I posted that thing on the um, on the Facebook page with that YouTube clip of that was all great. of the scenes yeah, cut together. And um, yeah, it, it really just makes me prefer... Every every other adaptation of Pride and Prejudice I see makes me really thankful for Comforth and Jennifer Ely. I'll just, I agree. I'll just They're such that. good actors. They're so good. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, please read this book, everyone. It's so good. And we want to hear what you think of it because our wheat sheet is empty. Oh, yeah. Um, we've, we've done all our interacting on the Facebook page recently. Well, Kristen, I think there's only one thing left to say. Oh, my goodness. Will you, will you do the honors? We have delighted you long enough.